Before we begin, please be advised that this episode contains mentions of addiction and suicide and may not be suitable for all listeners. Imagine we are sitting in a kitchen in the London borough of Southwark in the 1830s. We've joined the Siddle family for tea. Mr Siddle is a shopkeeper and the family is only just making ends meet. There's a bit of a din going on as seven children are crowded around the table. Among the chattering siblings, one girl stands out. She's got striking golden red hair and she's uncannily beautiful. Unlike the others, she's sitting quietly, staring with rapt attention at a plate of butter on the table. If you follow her gaze, you'll see that she's actually looking at a piece of torn newspaper that's wrapped around the butter. It's got a few verses of poetry printed on it by the writer Alfred Lord Tennyson, telling a story of a doomed maiden and a medieval knight. You can sense that the little girl is lost in her own world, her imagination whirring away in the land of Arthurian legend. This is Lizzie, and it's one of her first encounters with a poem. Little does she know it now, but when she grows up, she's going to be a supermodel. And not only that, she will also become an artist and a poet in her own right. One day, she will even illustrate the very poem that she's staring at right now, And eventually, some of her drawings will end up in the Ashmolean Museum. This is Objects Out Loud, an audio adventure through the poetry and stories hidden in the galleries of the Ashmolean Museum. This episode is all about a muse, in her own words. Today, we're heading to the Ashmolean's Western Art Print Room. It stores thousands of works on paper, from drawings and watercolours to prints and manuscripts. We're here looking for traces of Lizzie Siddle, one of the most recognisable faces of the 19th century, whose beauty inspired some of the great poetry and art of her generation. We know a lot about how people saw Lizzie, but if you know where to look in the print room, you discover how she saw the world back. Here's Caroline Palmer, one of the print rib managers, to tell the story of the extraordinary Lizzie Siddle. In 1856, the poet Christina Rossetti visited her brother, the artist Dante Gabriel Rossetti, in London. What she saw there seems to have fascinated her. All over his studio, there were drawings and paintings of the very same woman, obsessively repeated. It intrigued her, and she wrote a poem about it. One face looks out from all his canvases. One self-same figure sits, walks, or leans. We found her hidden just behind those screens. That mirror gave back all her loveliness. A queen in opal or in ruby dress, a nameless girl in freshest summer greens, a saint, an angel. Every canvas means the same one meaning, neither more or less. He feeds 
beads upon her face by day and night, and she, with true kind eyes, looks back on him, fair as the moon and joyful as the light, not one with waiting, not with sorrow dim, not as she is, but was when hope shone bright, not as she is, but as she fills his dream. The face in all these paintings was that of Elizabeth Eleanor Siddle, who's best known as a pre-Raphaelite muse and model. The pre-Raphaelites were a radical band of artists intent on tearing up what they saw as the fusty rules of the Victorian art establishment. Thanks to them, you may already be familiar with Lizzie's face, perhaps from Millet's painting in the Tate Gallery, for instance, where she appears as the doomed Ophelia drowning in the waters of a brook. From what contemporaries said, there seems to have been an element of otherworldliness about her, an aloofness in her bearing that made her seem more like a duchess than the daughter of a shopkeeper. One story goes that Walter Deverell, a friend of the Brotherhood of Artists, spotted her working in a hat shop and was so struck by her appearance that he employed her as a model. The whole group became obsessed with her, competing to have her in their paintings. And none was more fixated than Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Soon, he and Lizzie became lovers. Early on in their relationship, the besotted Rossetti drew her repeatedly. And in the Western Art Print Room, we're lucky enough to have several of his exquisite drawings of Lizzie. In one, she kneels in profile, playing some musical pipes. In another, she plucks delicately at a stringed instrument. In all these drawings, her eyes are downcast, giving the impression of a slightly wistful, melancholy figure. But Christina Rossetti's poem hints that the real Lizzie behind her brother's pictures is more than she seems. The drawings show her not as she is, but as she fills his dream. So what lies behind the dreamy image that we tend to have of Lizzie as filtered through the eyes of Rossetti and his circle? There's no better place to answer this question than the Ashmolean print room, which contains sheet after sheet of Lizzie's drawings and poems. Out of these appears the portrait of a woman on her own terms and in her own voice. And it's a very different image from the fairy tale figure of the Pre-Raphaelite's pictures. Lizzie was no shrinking violet and was far more than just a pretty face. The poet Algernon Swinburne, for example, spoke of her wit, humour, heroism and sweetness. He emphasised the love of literature and the sparkling pleasure of her company. She enjoyed limericks and engaged in rather high-spirited pranks with the painter Holman Hunt. She became a great friend of the feminist artists and social reformers, Anna Mary Howitt, Barbara Bodichon and Bessie Rayner Parks. Striking, tall and unconventional in her looks and in her dress, the incomparable Miss Siddle made a strong impression on everyone she met. Although she had little encouragement at home where money was tight, 
She was literate, with a great enthusiasm for poetry and art. Taught by Rossetti to draw and paint in watercolours, she shared the Pre-Raphaelites' fascination with the medieval world of knights and ladies, of chivalry, love and loyalty. Her fondness for poetry led her to create illustrations for traditional ballads and the poems of Walter Scott. For John Keats's La Belle Dame Sans Merci and for Alfred Lord Tennyson's Lady of Shalott, which had first attracted her as a child. Here's an extract from Tennyson's poem, telling the story of a medieval lady cursed to die if she ever looks out of the window. To protect herself, she must only see the passing world reflected in a mirror. Either side the river lie long fields of barley and of rye that clothe the world and meet the sky. And through the field the road runs by to many towered Camelot. And up and down the people go, gazing where the lilies blow, round an island there below, the island of Shalott. Willows whiten, aspens quiver. Little breezes dusk and shiver Through the wave that runs forever By the island in the river Flowing down to Camelot Four grey walls and four grey towers Overlook a space of flowers And the silent isle embowers The Lady of Shalott By the margin, willow-veiled Slide the heavy barges trailed by slow horses, and unhailed the shallop flitteth silken sailed, skimming down to Camelot. But who hath seen her wave her hand, or at the casement seen her stand? Or is she known in all the land, the Lady of Shalott? Only reapers, reaping early, in among the bearded barley, hear a song that echoes cheerly from the river winding clearly down to towered Camelot. And by the moon the reaper weary, piling sheaves in uplands airy, listening, whispers, "'Tis the fairy, Lady of Shalott." There she weaves by night and day a magic web with colours gay. She has heard a whisper say, a curse is on her if she stay to look down to Camelot. She knows not what the curse may be, and so she weaveth steadily, and little other care hath she, the Lady of Shalott. And moving through a mirror clear that hangs before her all the year, shadows of the world appear. There she sees the highway near, winding down to Camelot. There the river eddy whirls, and there the surly village churls, and the red cloaks of market girls pass onward from Shalott. Sometimes a troop of damsels glad, an abbot on an ambling pad, sometimes a curly shepherd lad, or long-haired page in crimson clad, goes by to towered Camelot. And sometimes through the mirror blue the knights come riding two and two. She hath no loyal knight and true, the Lady of Shalott. But in her web she still delights To weave the mirror's magic sights For often through the silent nights 
a funeral, with plumes and lights and music, went to Camelot. Or when the moon was overhead, came two young lovers lately wed. I am half sick of shadows, said the Lady of Shalott. Of course, all ends tragically for the Lady of Shalott when she sees in her mirror the handsome Sir Lancelot riding by. She falls in love with him and looks out of the window. The curse falls upon her and she dies. Poems like this one captured Lizzie's imagination and some of her illustrations for them are now in the Ashmolean. Several reflect the medieval spirit of Tennyson's poem echoing the elongated, slightly gawky figures of illuminated manuscripts with their angular poses in cramped interiors. They are often quite briefly sketched, but with a powerful directness and simplicity which conveys raw emotion. One of her drawings, illustrating Robert Browning's poem Pippa Passes, so impressed the critic John Ruskin that he bought up her entire output of drawings on the spot. The fresh, untutored style of Lizzie's work appealed to him, embodying what he saw as the naivety and sincerity of medieval art. Ruskin became her patron, paying for her to visit Paris, a niece in the south of France, and then to study art in Sheffield. Lizzie aspired to become a professional artist in her own right, at a time when this was a relatively unusual role for a woman. For most visitors today, one of the Ashmolean drawings in particular stands out as an entirely unexpected sketch by a Victorian young lady. It's on a small sheet of paper, as most of Lizzie's drawings are, hastily drawn in black ink with a sharp nibbed pen. In it, we can see a picture of Lizzie as she saw herself standing in a small skiff or punt. Wearing a long, loose dress, she's fending off an approach from two men in a rowing boat. This looks more like an encounter on an Oxford river than the mysterious waters flowing down to Camelot. This female figure is no Arthurian lady of the lake. Rather than languishing in the punt, trailing her long fingers in the water as we might expect, She's standing erect, leaning heavily on the punt pole to make good her escape. And for once, we can see her eyes. Her determined gaze is focused on those marauding males, repelling their unwanted attentions as one of them lunges towards her. It comes as quite a shock to see her so active, with her eyes confrontational rather than demurely lowered. It's only a brief sketch probably just an amused recollection of a playful incident, but it certainly hints at a very different side to Lizzie. It seems to show a time when there was fun, even horseplay between friends, before the cloud descended on the friendship between Rossetti and his wife-to-be, a time when hope shone bright, as Christina Rossetti had put it. As well as these drawings, the Ashmolean has several handwritten drafts for Lizzie's poems, some of which convey the intensity that once characterised the love between them. Here is one of them. Love kept my heart 
in a song of joy. My pulses quivered to the tune. The coldest blasts of winter blew upon me like sweet airs in June. Love floated on the mists of morn and rested on the sunset's rays. He calmed the thunder of the storm and lighted all my ways. Oh, heaven help my foolish heart, which heeded not the passing time, that dragged my idol from its place and shattered all its shrine. Love held me joyful through the day and dreaming all through the night. No evil thing could come to me. My spirit was so light. This passionately joyful love is the element of Lizzie's story that tends to disappear once we think of the tragic end to her relatively short life. The dominant note in most of her poems is one of sadness, of lost love and betrayal. Here she hints at the fallen idol that Rossetti was to become for her, disappointing her with his fickle affections, his repeated infidelities, and his refusal to marry, probably for fear of family disapproval. Weakened by digestive problems and lung disease, Lizzie became increasingly erratic, and from Rossetti's perspective, demanding her growing addiction to laudanum, which was initially taken for medical reasons, is reflected in some of the scraps of paper we have in the collection. These have fragments of poetry scribbled wildly across them in barely legible handwriting, quite different from her usual careful script. Thinking her finally on the point of death, Rossetti resolved to marry, and they travelled on honeymoon to Paris where Lizzie regained something of her old energy. But a stillbirth, followed by miscarriage, led her ever deeper into illness and depression, whether her death was suicide or not, and there are conflicting reports about that. Most of her poems seem to reflect the acutely painful circumstances of her life. It's really difficult not to interpret the following poem as autobiographical, although we should really resist the temptation to assume that this is always the case, since ballads and romantic poetry often did revel in an air of melancholy. Thy strong arms are around me, love. My hand is on thy breast. Low words of comfort come from thee. Yet my soul is not at rest. For I am but a scared thing, nor can I ever be aught but a bird whose broken wings must fly away from thee. I cannot give to thee the love I gave so long ago, the love that turned and struck me down among the blinding snow. I can but give a tired heart and weary eyes of pain, a faded mouth that cannot smile and may not laugh again. Yet, keep thine arms around me, love, until I fall to sleep. Then leave me, saying no goodbye, lest I might wake and weep 
manuscript of this poem is fascinating because it's a handwritten draft made by Lizzie herself, rather than the version edited after her death by William Michael Rossetti, Dante's brother. His amended version was the one that was eventually published, of course, so that Lizzie's presence was once again filtered by the men in her life. The version you've just heard was in Lizzie's original words, which are preserved here in the print room. Rossetti was left devastated by Lizzie's death, no doubt riddled with guilt at his less than noble behaviour. And she remained crucial to his creative imagination. His poems and paintings, in which the same themes are often intertwined, fused his idealised love for Lizzie with that of the lovers Dante and Beatrice. The rather gruesome tale of how Lizzie's coffin was exhumed in order to rescue the notebook of poems he had had buried with her has sadly overshadowed our image of Lizzie as she once was an enthusiastic pupil at the Sheffield Art School, catching the train with fellow students to the Manchester Art Treasures exhibition, or exhibiting her paintings with the Pre-Raphaelites in Russell Place, or just arranging to meet up with Emma Maddox-Brown at the bus stop for a walk in the park and a chat, or sending her friends Georgiana and Ned Byrne-Jones a willow-patterned dish full of love. Rossetti tried to make amends, by recording as much as he could of Lizzie's artistic output. The print room has an extraordinary collection of glass plate negatives, unique and fragile records of the photographs he arranged to have taken of her drawings. Determined to preserve her memory, he pasted the prints into a series of albums which he shared with close friends and family. The Ashmolean has several pages from these albums and the photos provide an important record of some drawings that are now lost. In at least one case, they've helped to identify as Lizzie's, a work that was once wrongly attributed to Rossetti himself. But there's one drawing missing from Rossetti's albums, Lizzie's self-portrait in the punt. Perhaps it didn't fill his dream of Lizzie sufficiently. It certainly doesn't show his dear dove divine, half sick of shadows, gazing dreamily from her medieval casement window. But for us, the fact that this drawing is preserved provides a vital counterweight to Rossetti's carefully curated version of Lizzie. It conveys a really powerful sense of her as an active, living human being beyond all those mysterious, misty memories recording a moment of fun and games, splashing about on the river. Rossetti's poems, such as his Sudden Light, capture beautifully the consolations of memory and imagined spiritual reunion with a lost love. I have been here before, but when or how I cannot tell. I know the grass beyond the door, the sweet keen smell, the sighing sound, the lights around the shore. You have been mine before. How long ago I may not know. But just when at that swallow saw your neck turned so, some veil did fall. I knew it all of yore. 
has this been thus before? And shall not thus time's eddying flight Still with our lives our love restore? In death's despite, and day and night Yield one delight once more? This poem evokes the shadowy, dreamlike version of Lizzie that tends to dominate our inherited notion of her as Rossetti's great love. At the Ashmolean, you'll have the chance to meet her more directly through the manuscripts of her poems and through her drawings and to uncover the spirited, creative woman she really was. I do urge you to come and experience them for yourself. When the museum reopens, the print room is open to everybody without appointment. Come and visit us and you will be able to sit face to face with Lizzie's self-portrait. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Whilst we're waiting for the museum to reopen, if you want to look into Lizzie's eyes in the way that she intended follow the link in the podcast notes and you can find this wonderful little drawing there. Join us next week for a trip into a dark forest with the poets John Burnside and Derek Marne. Until then, stay well. Stay well.